one of the things I most value about the sonnets, I think they gave us the vocabulary and even the syntax by which we still try to imagine what it means to desire another individual, what it means to experience the satiation of that desire and how we cope with that phenomena. So I find these poems just incredible documents of a brilliant writer working in an incredibly tight form, but using it to describe desires that extend well beyond his time and well beyond his being. So that becomes part of the challenge, too. You get these 154 poems, each of which has a slightly different spin on what it means to desire one person, what it might mean to desire two people, what it might mean to be desired by two people, and what it means to write, knowing that time ravages everything, but also knowing that if you keep being read, something survives. And the kind of remarkable faith that every time we read these poems is, again, justified, rewards us and fulfills that prophetic goal of these poems. I'm Mike Schoenfeld. I'm the John Knott Professor of English Literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. In this course, we're discussing Shakespeare's sonnets, a sequence of 154 poems written in a strict form conventionally associated with love. But what love means becomes quite unconventional in Shakespeare's hands. In this first episode, we'll discuss Shakespeare's career as a poet, the form and history of the sonnet, and the structure and themes of Shakespeare's own sequence. In the next episode, we'll delve more deeply into the themes, problems and characters in his sonnets. And in the final episode, we'll analyse four sonnets that show the sequence's range of emotion and tone and share reading strategies to help you discover the poetic techniques and insights in every one of Shakespeare's sonnets. Read the poems out loud. Shakespeare was known for his fine, violent phrase. And these are some of the smoothest and most gorgeous. In fact, it, it, it even can be hard to understand how complicated they are because they're so smooth. His smoothness belies the complexity just brilliantly. It took me about 15 years to re- fully realize that their smoothness hides something. A sonnet is a poem with 14 lines with a particular rhythm and strict rhyme scheme. Petrarch was the one who popularized the idea of sonnets. He wrote 366 poems for a woman named Laura. He gave the Italian Renaissance and then belatedly early modern England a kind of vocabulary for articulating inner agony brilliantly. So the thing about Petrarch, the thing that becomes the sort of standard Petrarchan trope is how much I'm suffering because of my unrequited desire for this distant lady whose love ennobles me. The sonnet is very slow to make it to England. It's really not until Sir Thomas Wyatt is an ambassador for Henry VIII that he goes to Italy, sees all the brilliant poetry going on there, and brings it back, kind of uh, anglicizes the sonnet. In England in the 1590s, for all kinds of complicated reasons, including the fact that Elizabeth is on 
the throne and liked to be addressed in flirtatious pseudo-erotic terminology. The sonnet takes off anyone who's worth his medal are writing sonnet sequences. The first great English sonnet sequence is by Sir Philip Sidney, his Astrophel and Stella. Spencer's Amoretti, Little Love Poems comes out after that. Just the whole 1590s are preoccupied almost by the form of the sonnet sequence. There's something about courtship of a distant female that played so brilliantly in the Elizabethan court. It was a way of showing your verbal dexterity and a kind of constancy and faithfulness. Sonnets exalted the love object, praising the beloved in highly idealised terms. The English sonnet carried over this idealising tendency, but it also slightly altered the Italian sonnet form. The Italian sonnet, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, C-D-E, C-D-E, is kind of the standard form. You can do it in Italian very easily. Shakespeare, I think, very, very wisely uses a form the Earl of Surrey had, which was A-B-A-B-C-D-C-D-E-F-E-F-G-G. And Surrey had also, with Wyatt, perhaps even linking back to Chaucer, figured that the line length in English that is most gratifying to ears is the iambic pentameter. Da-da, 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 da-da. It just, we, we feel good when we hear something falling into that. And we enjoy also hearing variations on that once that norm has been set up. You can hear this rhyme scheme and meter in Sonnet 17, which describes the beloved as being more beautiful than future readers of the poem will believe, and urges the beloved to pass on this beauty by having a child. Who will believe my verse in time to come, if it were filled with your most high deserts? Though yet, heaven knows, it is but as a tomb, which hides your life and shows not half your parts. If I could write the beauty of your eyes, and in fresh numbers number all your graces, the age to come would say, this poet lies, such heavenly touches ne'er touched earthly faces. So should my papers, yellowed with their age, be scorned like old men of less truth than tongue? And your true rights be termed a poet's rage and stretched metre of an antique song. But were some child of yours alive that time, you should live twice, in it and in my rhyme. All but two of Shakespeare's 154 sonnets follow this very regular pattern. This is striking, given that one of his favourite things to do as a playwright was to alter the genres and plots he worked with. We might wonder what drew him to keep returning to this form over and over again. I think he did find the challenge of 14 lines to be something that he just... How many times can I, in this tight little box do something different and brilliant and edgy and meaningful. They're little desiring machines, little thinking machines. And I would say, just as a reader, 
even when I don't fully understand a poem, when I have heard that A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, right? You've gotten a problem stated and you've worked through it and then you get a kind of closure or a turning. When that couplet comes on, it feels so satisfying, the kind of closure. So I think that form let him do something that even the stage didn't let him do until very late in his dramatic career when his characters feel heightened emotion they tend to turn to rhyme for Shakespeare there was a way of heightening the the circumstance so i think the poetry that he writes outside of the theater helps enhance the poetry he writes inside uh, uh, the theater there is something for Shakespeare about the binding up of poetry that I think really attracted him to this form and let him sort of flex a certain kind of muscle that could only be used sporadically on the stage. Today, Shakespeare is most well-known for his plays, but in his own lifetime, he was more famous for his poems, specifically his long narrative poems Lucrece and Venus and Adonis. Part of what made those poems so popular was their sensuality and representation of desire. When Shakespeare died, we often forget that he was probably best known for his Ovidian erotic poem, Venus and Adonis, an amazing poem, just suffused with eroticism. I mean, even the trees are dripping with sensuality and the beasts. And and it's the story of a lusty goddess, Venus, who wants to make love to an adolescent young man. It's an incredibly popular poem. 20 editions by the time of Shakespeare's death. We have stories, uh, it may or may not be relevant, but Oxford and Cambridge undergraduates hiding the poems under their pillows for private pleasures. It's a wildly uh, luscious, lubricious, uh, erotic poem. There's, you know, there are beautiful male bodies, beautiful female bodies, something for everyone. And I think that was one reason for its popularity. The first sonnet we heard, number 17, doesn't specify the gender of its addressee. So when the speaker says, if I could write the beauty of your eyes, he could be addressing a woman or a man. The addressee is generally identified as a young man because the neighbouring poems are addressed to a young man, though Professor Schoenfeld cautions that we shouldn't read too much into the sequence of poems because we don't know if Shakespeare intended to publish the sonnets in the order they appeared. The speaker is generally referred to as a he. The speaker of a sonnet sequence was conventionally gendered male, and sonnets such as number 42 represent the speaker as a man caught in a love triangle between a male friend and a female lover. How far we can identify the male speaker with the male Shakespeare is a question that has long teased and intrigued readers, as we'll discuss. Shakespeare's sonnets were published in 1609, in a volume that also included a longer poem called A Lover's Complaint. The volume has its own intriguing mystery in the dedication, which reads, To the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W.H., all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth, T.T., T.T. refers to the printer, Thomas Thorpe. But who is Mr. W.H.? Critics have speculated about this for centuries. If one wanted to create a literary mystery 
deliberately. One could not do better than the production of this volume. Normally, the poet would, as Shakespeare had done for both Venus and Adonis and for Lucrece, one would dedicate it to some lord very overtly. There, it was the Earl of Southampton, a brilliant and beautiful young man who may get into the poems. We have no idea. But instead, we hear about uh, a mysterious Mr. W.H. If it were H.W., if it were a dyslexic typesetter, it could be the Earl of Southampton, Henry Rosely, starting with the W. Uh, we don't know for sure. It could be one of the dedicatees of the first folio. William Herbert is one of the two dedicatees. He could be W.H., but he's an Earl. His status is too high to be addressed as Mr. W.H. I'm not sure that many people, even of Shakespeare's contemporaries, knew exactly who Mr. W.H. is. It's very possible that it was designed to generate the kind of prurient excitement. Who is this? Who is, you know, uh, who could it be? Other well-known sonneteers did sometimes include in their poems coded references to real-life people that some readers might have recognised. And so part of the excitement about identifying Mr WH is the idea that he might be the real-life model for the beautiful young man in the poems who is so beloved of the speaker. Oscar Wilde in the late 19th century had imagined uh, that in fact because of the jokes on the word hues, a man in hue, all hues in his controlling, that the young man was actually a young boy actor named Willie Hughes uh, that he's writing these, these, these poems to. I mean, it's total fantasy, but it's a brilliant fantasy. I can't imagine the industry of the 19th and 20th centuries of Shakespeare studies if we didn't have that mystery to invest our own fantasies into. Even today, scholars research historical figures to propose new possibilities for the identity of Mr. W.H. Such research taps into a larger fantasy about gaining access to Shakespeare's inner life. The poet William Wordsworth famously said of the sonnet, With this key, Shakespeare unlocked his heart. There's a tempting thought that we can uncover Shakespeare's own relationships, his thoughts, his longings, if we can just learn to decode the sonnets. But should we really read the poems as autobiography? One of my teachers at Berkeley, Stephen Booth, said that Shakespeare was certainly either heterosexual, homosexual or bisexual. The poetry gives us no clues to which. I'm not sure I fully agree, but it's a great, great line. It's hard for me to imagine that one would invest that much intensity and energy into something that was just a mere exercise. So part of me thinks that the poems start somewhere with an authentic set of aspirations and desires and frustrations on the part of the poet. This is the great role player. This is the person who, as far as we know, didn't murder anyone, but could write the interior space of a murderer better than anyone. As far as we know, wasn't a woman, but could write brilliant female characters. So it's somewhere between role-playing and kind of the way we role-play when we try to become certain versions of selves and certain imagination. There are the two poems that pun aggressively on will, 
And uh, part of the joke is just knowing that the poet's first name is William. So there are ways in which these poems tease us with that. And as you like it, we hear that the truest poetry is the most feigning. So the truest poetry is the most desiring, or the truest poetry is the most feigning, lying, faking. And I think it's somewhere, somewhere in that gap is kind of the role that these poems must have played for Shakespeare. We'll never know exactly what connection these poems have to Shakespeare's own personal experiences. But some people reacted negatively to the sonnets because they connected Shakespeare the man with the speaker in the poems, a speaker who doesn't follow the sonnet's traditional model of romantic sexual love. Both Sidney and Spencer, the two great sonneteers before him, have such clear heterosexual longings expressed in their collection. Spencer ends, uh, ends his sequence with a gorgeous marriage poem, the Epithalamian. And it's, it's just a glorious celebration of a kind of heterosexual love. For Shakespeare, the standard way of apprehending the order of the sonnets is to suggest that the first 126 poems are what we call the young man sonnets. And they're all about a relationship with a beautiful young man that he's encouraging to reproduce himself so that his image won't be lost. But they very quickly become concerned on the one hand with writing, lines, the question of uh, lineage and the lines of poetry get kind of fused and they become alternate and almost competing modes of achieving immortality. At Sonnet 127, we get a turn and it is almost as if Shakespeare stages it as a change. He says, in the old age, black was not counterfair, but now is black beauty's successive heir. And so the sonnets 127 through 152 are imagined to be what we call, in a term I find hard to substitute for, but also filled with problems, the Dark Lady poems. Not a phrase Shakespeare ever used himself. And then the last two poems are little Cupid poems. So that's kind of how the standard sequence is broken up. Uh, and you can see it's kind of, kind of out of proportion. I mean, most of the poems are written probably to a beautiful young man, not the standard erotic narrative. That Departure from convention, replacing the sonnet's usual female love object with a beautiful young man, was likely part of the reason that Shakespeare's sonnets didn't have the same popularity as his plays for several centuries after their publication. The poems are received relatively poorly for the longest time, and it's really not until uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, when people start reading these poems again anew and seeing in them some of the same kinds of verbal accomplishment in a very different key. Later in the 17th century and in the 18th century, there was a lot of nervousness about these poems. People really found the male-male intimacy to be chafing against the ideals of... I mean, it takes a long time for Shakespeare to take on the critical role in English culture that he does. And just as he's becoming England's great national poet in the late 18th century, 
kind of combined with the success of English colonial ventures around the globe and stuff, the male-male poems make people feel very uneasy. This is not a set of desires that have yet found their uh, culture place. One thing that's lovely, though, is with our belated but meaningful attention to same-sex love in earlier cultures, the sonnets are wildly celebrated today in criticism. In our next episode, we'll discuss the relationship between the speaker and the beautiful young man to whom so many of the sonnets are addressed, and we'll explore how this relationship might actually have reflected parts of Shakespeare's culture. We'll also discuss the cultural weight behind the later sonnets addressing of a woman as dark and black, and the sense of self-division the speaker experiences in his desire for both of these figures.